Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast on Germany. As we continue our month of Germany with our special interviews, today we have Eric Paranovic. Hello, Eric. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Doing just great. Uh, Eric here got his doctorate, I should say, Dr. Paranovic got his doctorate at uh, Temple in history uh, this year, actually. So congratulations on that successfully defending your dissertation, getting it published, getting all of that craziness out of the way. That must be such a huge relief. Yes. <laughs> statement. It feels like I'm 50 pounds lighter. Yeah. <laughs> Most definitely. It is um, for people who have not gone through that themselves or about to uh, go through it themselves. I, I wish you the best of luck. It is not an easy process. It is uh, you just want to gouge out your eyes sometimes having to deal with that. But once it's done, it's done. It's a work of art. It's your baby, and you get to keep it forever. Um, he now works as a historian at the Naval History and Heritage Command, which is pretty amazing. Um, I did ask him. He is not. Um, he did not serve in the Navy beforehand. Uh, I was just curious for myself, um, but for our listeners out there, uh, he did join um, from uh, straight from uh, getting his doctorate. So for those of you who are working on your PhD, um, working for uh, the federal government is an, a, a very viable and successful uh, field to go into uh, once you get your PhD. It's not always going back into the universities. Um, and today we're going to be talking about his dissertation, which he um, successfully got published uh, this year, on German aviation's role in researching uh, Western Germany back on the map of power uh, and helping to establish modern multinational European aviation uh, sector. So, uh, Dr. Pernovic, uh, can you just, you know, start us off with a uh, history of aviation in Germany? I guess starting back to the turn of the century in 1900. Yeah, so happy to. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this. Um, aviation has been a really important aspect of German culture and society, like both political, social, and economic, since before the turn of the century. Um, we've all heard of, well, probably have heard of like Graf von Zeppelin, who created the first rig successful like rigid airships. But Zeppelin's um, run of success in the late 19th century, early 20th century, really captivated the imagination of Germans, as well as people around the world, for the possibility of human flight. Um, people at the turn of the 20th century viewed flight in a lot of the same way that people today view things like artificial intelligence or um, other advanced computer capabilities. Like This represented a limit, or at least seemingly limitless potential for, for humanity, right, as far as commerce and and um, rapid transit across the globe, as well as the military potential of it um, that was not lost in anybody. Uh, military aviation actually dates back to much earlier in the 19th century. Uh, balloons were used during the Napoleonic Wars. They were used during the Civil War. So the application, mostly for observation of troop formations and movements and everything, uh, but there also have been debates throughout the century and into the pre-First World War period about its applica like, potential application for aviation in a military context. Um, Generally speaking, you know, as a usually as like a bombing platform was kind of how I race sort of con conceived of at the time, which is more or less what it winds up being. Yeah. But within Germany, um, this this aviation aspect gets wrapped up um, intrinsically in Germany's sort of 
uh, push for greatness after unification 1871. Um, Germans view Zeppelin's successes as a reflection of their country's own rising success in the world. And so his, his flights are famously documented. Um, people will line up to watch his Zeppelins go by, to take off, to land. He has a whole series of like an unofficial economy built around him. Everything from like plates to, you know, playing cards and like toys and everything, most of which he did not sanction and did not enjoy. Um, but, you know, the Kaiser issues him numerous awards, calls him like a heroic German, everything. So aviation is very much on Germany's cultural radar from essentially the inception of the concept. Um, heavier than air aviation is a little different. So like aircraft, for instance, as opposed to yeah. airships. Um, the German military gets more on board with those as the First World War is gearing up in between 1910 and 1914. But when they start, when the war starts, uh, German aviation, from a military perspective, is dominated still by airships. Um, and their deficiencies become pretty apparent by the middle war years. Uh, they're filled with hydrogen in a lot of cases, which is fairly flammable. And they're much slower and um, much easier to find than aircraft are while still having longer range and more payload capacity, obviously. But um, essentially, Germany throughout the First World War goes from having not a, a lot of powered aviation experience to being one of the foremost producers of advanced aircraft at the end of the war. Uh, the Junkers Company is probably the most famous for this. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Hugo Junkers, who founds the company and is, it leads it until the, the Nazi government seizes it from him in, in 1934. Um, by the end of the war, it has all-metal monoplane aircraft that have rigid wings. Um, he, he has designs that are hands down the most advanced in the world, and many of them get seized by the Allied powers in the, in the, in the post-war period, if not... Um, some, some cases, like, seized outright. In a lot of cases, there's just an embargo placed on his work. But after World War I, um, it's a provision within the, the Treaty of, both in the Treaty of Versailles as well as the, you know, uh, the subsequent Allied agreements that German aviation is essentially squashed. Um, it was viewed as an inherent. Military aviation is overtly outlawed in Germany, uh, much like submarines. Um, they were viewed as being inherently too much for the interwar German military to be trusted with, uh, the Reichswehr, which was treaty limited to 100,000 men, um, no tanks, no planes, no submarines, uh, very limited surface Navy. Um, basically, the Allied intention with the Reichswehr was to use them as, a peace, as, as peacekeeping troops within Germany itself, so they wouldn't have to do that. So in the interwar years, German aviation um, has a boom and a bust cycle. It starts off, well, really a bust, a boom and a bust, I should say, because in the immediate post-war period, there, German aviation practically ceases to exist. Um, most of the companies either go up or go, go belly up because they have, they cannot sell their planes, they cannot earn money. Um, Junkers comes dangerously close to going out of business. Some, um, like Volker, uh, like Anthony Volker was a famous designer during the First World War who was, uh, he was Dutch in origin and then in the immediate post-war period returned to the Netherlands where he could, you know, make airplanes again unfettered. Um, That's right. So yeah, so, right. Um, he apparently fled, uh, I think it was like some like factory strike where the workers had seized the, the factory anyway, and so he just was like, I'm, I'm done, <laughs> and just left. Um, but, so the interwar period, German aviation uh, 
starts off that way, but as as the 20s goes on, uh, restrictions start to be lifted on especially civil aviation. So like German plane manufacturers can start making aircraft again. Uh, Junkers has um, several that are really successful, mostly as airliners or um, like mail delivery planes or what have you. But in the late 1920s, the German military, the Reichswehr, um, which essentially exists as a state within a state within the Weimar government. Like the Weimar government never really controls the military adequately. Yeah. At all. Really, the military is always a wild card as to whether or not they'll support a putsch or not. Or um, it's it's a very conservative institution dominated by a lot of monarchists. You know, who who, who they and their families all owed their their wealth and success to the Kaiser to the imperial government. Yeah. And so it, it was never an easy fit with a social democratic republic that comes out of you know the, the aftermath of the First World War. But the Reichswehr signs a series of secret agreements with the Soviet Union. Because the Soviets are also a pariah state in the post-war period, to essentially do common aircraft and tank development and training with the Soviets. Okay. And so you have a, a bevy of German military officers from the army and from what will eventually become the Luftwaffe going to um, just outside of Moscow. Um, and then you also have German companies contracting with the Soviet government. Again, I, I keep harping on Junkers because I have a, I just had a lot of information on the Junkers company through mm-hmm. our sources, but. They're also sort of my bellwether for like the health of German aviation because they they're often the most the one the company's like most directly manipulated by the German government. So like it's it really it, it, they they show the value set the German government has at any given point toward aviation as to how like authoritarian they take it like how much how laissez faire they are with it like how much money they're willing to put up or not put up for aviation. <clears throat> but essentially, um, Junkers contracts with the Soviet government. To build some aircraft out there um it's a secret agreement so he tried when he tries to go later on to the german government like for restitution because the soviets didn't pay him what he wanted to get paid yeah there's no there's no recourse and the company practically goes under again Mm. so yeah during the interwar period the military is conducting essentially secret secret training operations in the soviet union using new aircraft that are technically for the soviets but you know they do this common this common program together Aviation has another boom cycle um, following it, it's uh, following the 29 crash. Um, it, it's again, you know, not a good time to be an airplane manufacturer in Germany because there's nope. no money for it, and you know the whole the global economy is hurting. But the the Nazi rise to power in 1933 is a shot in the arm for aviation, um, but in a different kind of way this time. Whereas previously the government would allow, <coughs> excuse me. Aviation companies, um, a little like latitude to sell things abroad, or would sometimes provide direct relief in the event of an economic downturn, like they would the Junkers once or twice. The Nazi government um, construed aviation directly as part of the Gleichanschaltung, uh, this 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 Nazi uh, totalitarian societal approach, right? That all things must serve the party, all things must be amalgamated into the Aryan vision of what a future Germany must hold. And so the aviation sector effectively is nationalized during the Nazi period in a lot of ways. Not sometimes overtly, sometimes less so. Um, Hugo Junkers, the man who founded that company, for instance, was not a Nazi. He opposed the regime even after the rise to power. And they effectively put him under house arrest, seized all the stocks in his company and nationalized it. And so his company ceased to exist as anything other than an arm of the the aviation industry in Germany. But other companies towed the line a little bit better. and they benefited from a massive influx of contracts for new aircraft, 
for R&D purposes. And <clears throat> the idea being, of course, that Germany's rearming immediately after after the the, um, the the Nazi seizure of power. Like they throw out all of the Treaty of Versailles restrictions on armament. They start procuring things like aircraft and tanks and submarines pretty quickly after that. They remilitarize the Rhineland, and then eventually they'll start being more aggressive with their neighbors. But for the aviation sector, it's effectively, it's, it's, it's for lack of a better term, it's, it's a boom time. But it's also one in which there are a lot of governmental strings attached. Aviation struggles to assert itself. These companies <coughs> are constantly dealing with multiple levels of, of bureaucracy, whether it be from the Reich Air Ministry all the way up to the Luftwaffe with Hermann Goering and his various subordinates that all are infighting with each other anyway. Mm-hmm. And so during the war years, German aviation, of course, like is has a, a high point of te- technical sophistication. They're you know, the first country to develop stable military jets, um, guided missiles, all these things, right? But throughout the war years, um, you know, they're these factories getting bombed. Their workers are who are highly skilled workers that take years and years to train or being conscripted and sent to the front. And so by the end of the war, German aviation is often run by slave labor. People from concentration camps are just rounded up and sent to these factories, whether they be in a salt mine or out in the woods or something. And it's it's brutal inhuman slave labor that's used to build a lot of these wonder weapons that the German military supposedly gets by the end of the war. Um, but after 45, mm-hmm. German aviation is not just curtailed, it is outlawed fully. There is no more German aviation. It is viewed as inherently a tool of the state because all these companies in in the mid-1930s either happily towed the line of the state or had their their resources seized by the state and put to its own purpose. Does this include a civilian? Yes, there is no civil aviation. There is none. Uh, Eventually, within a couple of years, the Allied Control Commissions kind of loosen up a little bit and like glider clubs will start up again. And then like, by like, by around 1950, there's like some like small civilian aviation projects, like private aircraft or sport aircraft or what have you. But like in 1945, when you know the Allied powers are all meeting in Potsdam, German aviation is is axed. It is done. It is viewed as an as an inherently militaristic tool that had facilitated Germany's genocidal conquest of Europe. So that's sort of where my research picks up for the most part is where German aviation lies within German consciousness in the, in the post-war West German state, mm-hmm. as well as the political, military, and economic ambitions that mostly the, Con- the Conrad Adenauer government attaches to military aviation because the Christian Democrats are much more supportive of rearmament and NATO and all these these various Cold War military ventures than the Social Democrats are, which are overtly anti-military, anti-war in the, mm-hmm. from the outset. Um, so I pick up by examining essentially that by the time Western rearmament rolls around, it's been nine to ten years since Germans have operated military aircraft. But part of the reason NATO or Germany is rearmed is because it is the biggest untapped manpower pool on the continent for NATO's com- common defense. And so a German Air Force, a reconstituted German Air Force, a, which would is expected to be a very large uh, service, is a key component of NATO's new defense strategy for Western Europe um, in the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. This is in part uh, because the Korean War terrifies NATO because, you yeah. know, 
The, it's not the, going that way. Yeah, no, the, the, I mean, the, the surprise attack and the complete routing of, of UN troops in the initial stage of the Korean War terrifies Western Europe. You know, and the United States, too, for that matter, because these were these were North Korean troops doing this. Imagine if the Soviets were invading Europe like mm-hmm. they they would be, you know, in Normandy within a week is was kind of the fear. Um, so you have that. You also have the Eisenhower administration coming in in 1952 or 53, I should say. And part of the Eisenhower administration's initial push is to reduce U.S. conventional military costs in favor of a massive nuclear buildup. Mm-hmm. And so part <clears throat> part of the way to, to offset those costs was, you know, let's rearm the Germans. Let's give the Germans a bunch of our, of our you know, used military equipment. Let's get millions of them in uniform. And they can take the place of American infantry divisions and fighter squadrons in West Germany for the most part. Mm-hmm. Whereas the United States will, will provide the nuclear umbrella, right? So if the Soviets invade, it'll be German troops facing them, but we will we'll, we'll, we'll be using the nukes, don't worry. <laughs> it's kind of the mindset. And so the Germans look at this, at least um, many within the Adenauer government and many with outside of it, too. It's 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 a little disingenuous to say this is the Adenauer government doing this entirely because there are a lot of players in that government. Mm-hmm. The most notable one that will push for not only Germany's revived aviation sector, its strong military aviation, but the starfighter specifically is a man named Franz Josef Strauss. Um, Strauss will become the Minister of Defense in the Adenauer government, and after that is a very prominent Bavarian politician um, within both the Bundestag as well as in Bavarian state politics. Um, Franz Josef Strauss is an ardent and unapologetic militarist in the post-war period, at a time when militarism in in West Germany is not a unifying issue. Many people in the post-war period um, subscribe to a never again mindset, never again should we involve ourselves in, a, in a, a, essentially a genocidal war, never again, especially now with the nuclear stakes being elevated, um, never again should German troops serve, never again should we allow an authoritarian regime to take control of our society. Essentially, after, after two world wars, after you know 12 years of Nazi totalitarian rule, you had a whole generation of Germans that were very, very scarred. Oh, yeah. Um, anything military but you also had a a fair number of people still in germany that were pining for the glory days the time when the german military meant something when it when it was a force to be reckoned with in europe when it was a driver of innovation from a technological perspective when you know it was both a symbol of fear and respect for neighboring countries right like you don't want to mess with the germans because they have this very strong military kind of thing and so this disarmed existence, this, this disarmed and, un, and occupied existence was a continual thorn for them that, that irritated them. And Strauss was one of those. Uh, he had served during the Second World War as a junior officer, um, but he gets his start in politics in the immediate post-war period because he makes friends effectively with the Allied occupation government in Bavaria. He serves as an interpreter for them, and they help set him up as a politician in, in Bavaria to give him his, his first political push. But he uses that ex- that experience to um, to begin a, a, an early rise in German politics, but also it's kind of like he he views the United States especially as a a very positive partner and his his goal to sort of reinvigorate Germany's militaristic spirit. Um, 
one of his close that he I mean, he has a very scandal plagued political career lots of corruption charges and allegations many of which are never substantiated because at least in the starfighters case which i will happily get to um the paperwork was misfiled and destroyed in the mid-1960s and we'll never know but one of yeah, his, that sounds pretty uh, common to happen in those cases yeah. but you know one of his one of his very close friends um who's an american uh i think it's ernst hauser is the man's name becomes an unofficial at lockheed eventually and that's that's part of like how that gets that becomes part of like the starfighter narrative eventually it's like this plane was you know bought for less than above board reasons but <laughs> but strauss is um when he he initially is like to bavarian state like the Bavarian state um house and then he he goes to the bundestag the federal parliament in the, in the early 1950s and he is an ardent, like he's on the floor of the Bundestag constantly talking about rearmament, talking about the need for rearmament, the, the need for Germany's militarist, like military to return for national defense purposes, as well as to show that like we are still a sovereign nation. He wraps the military up intrinsically in sovereignty that if we, yes, like Germany is divided. Yes, like we're, we're, we're still under occupation um, at this point in time. But if we have our own military, we can control our destiny a little bit more, is sort of his his belief. Because he views the German military as a wedge issue, right? Like, Germany can negotiate with the Western allies much more <coughs> competitively if it has a military to back itself up, because it can say it has a bigger say in how that military gets used in the defense of Germany. Um, sorry. <clears throat> so he he's pushing um, for... For years to to essentially um, to start military spending, start rearmament sooner than a lot of other Germans are comfortable with. From the Western Allied side, uh, German rearmament is negotiated from roughly, I mean, actively from like 1950 to 1954, roughly. But negotiations had started and stopped for years prior. The big sticking issue is how do we how do you rearm German troops and prevent World War II from happening again? Like, essentially, how do you rearm Germany and stop another authoritarian regime from rising up with that rearmament? <clears throat> and that had been bogged down for years. But particularly between um, the French, who had very good reason to not want to see German troops ever armed again, and then um, the UK, which had... Th there was a variety of reasons, like, why the debate was occurring, but essentially, like, trying to figure out, like, which, which organization the Germans should be forced to rearm within. Because the understanding everybody come to was Germans can rearm potentially, but they can only do it if they're under international supervision. Like Germany can only rearm if it's an international organization in which German political power is not absolute and in which there are multiple checks on it. And so for the longest time, the debate was, um, I mean, for several years, was... Um, how you were going to integrate that within a common European defensive organization. Um, there's a whole series of back and forth. There's a lot of good histories written on this topic, but long story short, eventually everyone decides that NATO will work, that, that NATO will provide the governing apparatus through which German troops can be rearmed, through which they can be trained and managed. And a, a big thing that reason too is the Germans, especially Cotton and Adenauer, are using this military armament as as leverage, right? Like they are advocating for sovereignty as much as they possibly can and helping to figure out like 
a way that they can rearm in which everybody is reasonably satisfied with the conclusion is a chunk of the reason why we, they wind up within NATO. Um, and mm. they wind up in NATO under their own command structure, too. Like, they they are... Because the French had, had earlier suggested, like, they be divided up into brigades and divisions under French command, right? Like, you take a German division, you take a German, um, you know, fighter wing or whatever, and they, it's it's a, it's within... Like, it has its own organizational structure and everything, but then it's under French command. And the Germans didn't like that. That was that was. I can you know, see why not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were they were trying to articulate a sovereignty that you know that wound up being several years of arguing back and forth. But by 1954, the West German government has approved rearmament for the Bundeswehr, the, the armed forces. Um, the the Western Allies have approved this, and rearmament is beginning. Now I'm going to focus mostly on the Air Force because that's where this all gets wrapped up into. But the West German Air Force is rearmed initially um, with mostly surplus American combat aircraft. Things like the F-86 Sabre or the F-84 Thunderstreak. Um, they do receive some British aircraft. I think um, the Hawker Hunter, I think, is like the naval aviation aircraft initially. And then they get Sea Vixens eventually. But, and then some French aircraft, too, especially for trainers and cargo planes. But from the get-go, this is all fairly obsolescent stuff. It was either designed in the immediate aftermath of World War II or is Korean War vintage and technology is just moving at a really fast pace at this point in time. Like the 1950s, if you look at airplanes as they were as they were commonly used in 1950 versus 1960, it's like you go from subsonic prop-driven aircraft that are your primary, you know, planes still in Korea for the initial period <coughs> up to Mach 2 aircraft by 1960. Mm. So like the 50s are a wild time for essentially an arms race. Like it's like aircraft are getting really advanced. Guidance systems are getting really advanced. Computers are really coming online for the first time. So it's it's like it's really apparent from the get go that the Germans are getting obsolescent stuff and it's not going to be the permanent thing they get, even for like the next 10 years. Now, Strauss factors into this because he construes aviation as a critical means of building Germany's clout on the international stage, <coughs> of improving the German economy, and of articulating a, again, like a sovereignty, right? Like, if yeah. Germany can again become like a high-technology hub for aviation, it'll make it a really important country in Europe. And not just Germany. I mean, like, Strauss really doesn't care about Germany as a whole so much because about Bavaria. So Strauss makes a concerted effort during this time to direct as much aviation money as possible into Bavaria. And especially when, when he becomes a defense minister, um, he eventually badgers the Adenauer government. Like, he's constantly on, on the Adenauer government's right flank, like attacking him for everything from the right. Mm -hmm. And eventually um, he wears down the Adenauer government to the point that, like, he's appointed defense, the, the second defense minister of the country um, after Theodore Blanc. And that's a... That's a gross simplification of that whole process, but you know, this is this is a whole long story, and I'm sure I'm losing somebody at this point. But um, so Strauss, as defense minister, um, views aviation as an untapped wellspring, and at this time, German aviation is not even on life support; it's effectively clinically dead. Like some German companies, like like Dornier or um, uh, Messerschmitt, to a lot to a smaller extent, are building little sport planes. Mm -hmm. um, or like little liaison aircraft. Um, I think Dornier has actually a, a run of success building like <coughs> these small prop-driven artillery liaison aircraft for different European air forces. But basically, the German 
aviation sector in 1955 is roughly where it was in 1945. So you've had 10 years of, of, of this sector being basically dead. And part of that means like German aviation, like aviation engineers, mechanics, everything, whoever survived the war went elsewhere. They went abroad. They went anywhere else where, you know, their skills could actually earn them money and mm-hmm. support their lives. And so Strauss views rearmament as, as a great instance in which essentially you can like jumpstart the sector with the goal of turning it into like a truly world-class aviation sector within 10 years. Like they, they want to go from zero to 60 in no time flat. And so by 1955, as the, as aviation or as Western military aviation is like really rearming, as they're like inducting their first pilot classes in, as they're getting their first airplanes out of mothballs and restoring them, the German defense ministry comes up with a multi-stage process by which it's going to go from nothing and no experience and no facilities and no skills and no personnel to being a peer competitor with the UK, France, and the United States by 1965. The first goal, yeah, it's, yeah, like it's, it's, it's fascinating. Like they really, you know, it gets, it gets brought up in the archival stuff a good bit. Um, but essentially like the first goal is like getting contract rights to refurbish all these, Amer- all, like, all these obsolete aircraft beginning, right? Like, like getting the right to have the the engines and the airframes refurbished by German companies. The second stage then is to get the right to license produce those aircraft and those engines. So essentially, like you're still building a, a saber, like like a North American saber, but you're doing it in a German factory instead. And the third stage then was to then get the license production rights to a modern combat aircraft from the West. So something that's cutting edge, something that, you know, from the US, the UK or France that is like fresh off the drawing board that uses the most advanced technology and bring that in <laughs> for production. Because the understanding is if you do that, like you're going to be training up all these people and getting all this equipment as you need it instead of like having to just do it all at once. Mm-hmm. And then once you've reached that maturity level where you're able to like design and produce and manage this very advanced system, you then do one organically or domestically. <clears throat> so after whatever the modern airplane is, you then take that experience and you go and you build your own thing. Yep. Whether that be with just a purely German thing or within a European context is up for debate still. Um, but so that's their goal. Their goal is it's very clear, like everybody in the defense ministry is pretty on board with it. And to achieve that, the defense ministry, like, almost pulls like a very similar move to the Nazi government by essentially selectively picking which companies they're going to favor and like reconstitute and stuff. Because a lot of these companies, like I mentioned before during the Second World War, were at least, if not overtly state-owned, like had a large number of their shares owned by the state. Mm -hmm. And so the Federal Republic, when it inherited the Nazi government's assets and debts and everything, it also inherited all these ownership stakes in all these companies, Junkers being one of them, right? Like they own that one outright. And so they selectively decide which companies are going to benefit, like which ones are going to be reconstituted and given sovereignty over their own affairs and which ones are going to be like essentially made subordinate to other companies. And Strauss is involved in that intrinsically from the get-go. And he's constantly pushing them to Bavaria. Like, because <clears throat> the Bavarian economy was still pretty agrarian in 1945. Like, 
outside of Munich, Bavaria was a very rural state. Um, even within Munich, it was a lot of like light industry, a lot of like tourism revenue and stuff. And so Strauss wants Munich to be like the aviation hub of Europe, which he more or less succeeds. Like Munich has a lot of European aviation stuff headquartered there now. But he encourages a lot of these companies to uproot wherever they were originally. Like a lot of them are all up and down the Rhine. And either by hook or by crook, like, nope, here is a facility outside of Munich. Go there kind of thing. Hmm. And so the Starfighter factors into this um, because when it's designed in the early 1950s, it is like, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever seen a Starfighter. They are nuts to look at. It is, it's, it's like a flying needle, basically. It's a very long, thin airframe with these tiny, stubby little wings because it makes use of this incredibly powerful engine that like allows it to to achieve um, Mach 2 flight without needing a lot of lift or anything. Um, but the F-104 is designed by a very famous aviation designer called Kelly Johnson, who, who worked for Lockheed, who designed a whole range of Lockheed products, the P-38 Lightning, um, the SR-71 will be one of his projects. Like, like Kelly Johnson's prolific. But the F-104 is his baby in the 50s. He he interviews um, American pilots in Korea and basically says, like, what do you want from the next generation aircraft? And they tell him, like, we want to control the vertical engagement because the MiG-15 was always better at engaging and disengaging than the F-86 was. And they're like, we want we want more power. We want to be able to control the, like, when we engage and when we disengage. And, you know, we hear that guided missiles might be a thing, kind of thing. Yeah. He's like, okay. So they go to the drawing board, and I mean, when you think about like, when when we're done talking, I want you to go look at this airplane, and then I want you to imagine like having to do the hand calculations and like the drawing board crap it took to make this thing. Like it's the the wing edge is like less than a quarter inch thick. It's like you can I've seen pictures. Like there's oh, I, I should send it to you at some point, but. Um, I worked at the Air and Space Museum. One of my office mates had a whole collection of these pictures of the Starfighter from the 50s. And there's one of a Lockheed sales rep who has a basket of fruit and vegetables. And he peels an apple on the leading edge of the wing. He makes coleslaw by just slicing a head of cabbage right against the front of the wing. Like, it's it's really, it's a crazy airplane. Genuinely. It, it looks like it shouldn't be able to fly. And in a lot of cases, um, having such an extreme design was not great for things like pilot safety, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But it's a crazy advanced airplane. And he does it unsolicited. He actually, like, he designs this plane after having talked to pilots, but not having to talk to the U.S. Air Force's leadership. And so, because at this point in time, um, the relation between industry and the government was still pretty buddy-buddy from the war. Mm-hmm. And so he had a lot of people... In the Air Force, he could he could just call up and say, "Hey, I have an idea for an aircraft. Can we build a requirement for this kind of thing?" And that's essentially what he did. Um, he designs this aircraft, and he goes to the Air Force and he says, "Hey, I was talking to some of your pilots, and I designed this lightweight interceptor that is super fast and can operate these new guided missiles we're we're, we're talking about rolling out here pretty soon. Um, what do you think? Can we build a requirement around that?" And the Air Force is wishy-washy on it because they're like, not really, but okay, I guess. Yeah, fine. So they kind of like half-heartedly greenlight the F-104 project without giving it a lot of funding. They're like, you guys fund this and then we'll eventually buy the thing, which is a little unusual. Um, Usually the government ponies up some money for R&D and prototypes and stuff, but not in this case. Um, 
so Kelly Johnson designs this plane. It, the Air Force is originally going to buy like a thousand, like nine hundred, I think, or seven hundred, like a, a good production run, right? Enough to justify the cost of doing the thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a whole series of issues that hit Lockheed in the mid '50s. Um, two of their airliners just don't sell because they they're prop planes at a time when jet airliners are becoming a thing. So they're really hurting from that. And then the Air Force cuts its, its starfighter requisition by two thirds. Hmm. Part of that is because they don't like like it's it's not <coughs> they're going more toward they're going more toward like heavier aircraft like they want like bigger planes that can do more stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the F four Phantom will be kind of like you know like the most famous first instance of that sort of thing, which is funny because it's a navy plane. But <laughs> uh, but the other problem is with it is the Starfighter is like super super advanced. Like a lot of untested technology was in this thing. Mm-hmm. Same with its engine. It's a GE engine the J79 that is like brand spanking new. It it's the first engine that can do level Mach 2 flight, which is twice the speed of sound. Like which is a really big deal because the sound barrier had just been broken like 7 years before this at this point. Like you're going from Mach 1 to Mach 2 in a very short period of time kind of thing. But there are a lot of teething issues with the Starfighter in Air Force service, which will be a common refrain throughout the Starfighter's time in various militaries. But so the Air Force Cuts its orders by two thirds. It grounds the whole fleet like within three months of buying it, and they go to Lockheed and they're like, "Guys, no." And Lockheed, <laughs> you know, Lockheed pushes back and says, "We're going to go under if you don't buy these planes." Like, you know, we we had like the jets, like the TriStar didn't work out. Like, <clears throat> you know, we we're gonna have to lay off our entire workforce, and that's not like, the DoD doesn't want that to happen. Like, like Lockheed, critical defense partner. Um, it takes a lot of time and effort to train a competent like workforce to build these planes, and so the government. This is this is the first of several bailouts Lockheed will get throughout the Cold War and the early modern period, like the most recent modern period from the U.S. government. But the government basically says, "Okay, what if we sell this to NATO?" And so the U.S. government, for really the first time. Um, like works hand in hand with Lockheed to create a combined offer system for European NATO allies. Basically, like Lockheed will sell the plane, <laughs> and the government will provide logistics and training to get those planes, those parts, and those pilots and those, and those ground crews all trained up on it as mm. part of like the sales package. Yeah. So it's a private Lockheed deal, but the government is an actor within it as essentially as like a sales incentive, right? Like. Mm-hmm. You get to take part in the U.S. Air Force's training and logistics network if you buy our planes, which is a big deal. Like, it's a really, that's a big fringe benefit when it comes to buying this stuff. And so they go to Europe in the 50s. And they, at the, at just at the right time, when the Germans are announcing, like, we're going to buy around 1,000 airplanes by 1960 of the newest variety that you all have to offer. And so throughout the late 1950s, um, <coughs> there's a whole competition between the Lockheed Starfighter, the Dassault Mirage III, which is a French product, mm-hmm. and um, several different British aircraft, none of which really make it. But what it really winds up being like <laughs> the Mirage and the Starfighter. And what it boils down to is who offers what benefits. The French, under Charles de Gaulle at this point in time, are really nationalistic. Um, aviation is definitely a key aspect of this, too. Like, So the French government, in trying to offer the Mirage to, to West Germany, says... You know, 
we're, we're close geographically. It'll be a lot easier for you to get your guys over here to train or whatever. Also, we use metric and use metric and the Americans use standard. And that's going to be a real giant pain for every party involved. And it, it does want to be a giant pain because, oh, yeah. you know, measurements are a thing. But, um, but Lockheed, but they don't offer the Germans the ability to license produce the Mirage just to buy it and take part in the common training program. They say you may eventually be given the option to license produce some aspects of the Mirage if you buy it. Mm. Lockheed goes over because they're desperate and they say, look, not only will you buy the Starfighter and you get all this stuff from the Air Force, we're going to sell you the intellectual property rights to the Starfighter in, in Europe. And we're going to give you the exclusive right to reissue license sub-production contracts across Europe. And so for the Germans, this is a much better deal mm -hmm. because they're looking at this as not only the means by which they can rebuild their aviation sector, but also like not be a pariah state in Western European politics so much because it, you know, after the Germans announced like their, their bid for like a thousand airplanes by 1960 kind of thing, um, the Dutch, the Belgians, the Italians all say, we're going to piggyback on whatever the Germans buy. Cause it'll be with a NATO. Cause like whatever they buy with a NATO, um, they can take, take part in like a common sort of like a common management and production things. Right. Okay. And so the Germans look at this and they're like, this is it. This is how we're back in. And so they get this deal from Lockheed to build the Starfighter. Uh, this, this, the, it's the G model Starfighter from German, the F-104G. Um, it's bigger and heavier and has more sophisticated crap in it than the American versions did, <laughs> which would be, it's one of its big Achilles heels in German service is like, it has these really finicky, untested flight computers that have a really hard time reading altitude properly when it's damp outside. And I don't know if there's, don't know if anybody's ever been. It's in always the damp when you're up there. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. There's there's a whole series of issues that comes with them operating the Starfighter um, because they just really want the plane for its symbolic value for like what it how it moves the needle forward, without thinking really hard about like how you actually manage it so people don't die flying it. And that's that's where a lot of like the established historiography kind of skews toward is like it's a disaster for the Germans for their first five years. Um, they lose like 100 pilots. I think like 112, I think, pilots flying this thing in training accidents. Like a third of all their starfighters crash. Um, granted, it serves between 1960 and 1987, I think is when it finally exits service. So like they fly it for a long time. So that's kind of like where my intervention is, is like there's a lot more of the starfighter other than the first five years being a disaster. Like they fly this thing ever, and it's a really important benchmark for, for Germany's sort of ascension to importance in Europe. Yeah, so um, when the Germans buy the Starfighter, they not, are not only getting this intellectual property rights issue to benefit their own industries, but they're also using it as, an, as a means of building their own clout within NATO by constructing what will become these multinational production and management consortiums. Um, so initially it's the Dutch and the Belgians who really want to point, like, piggyback on the German um, defense procurement spree because they have much smaller defense budgets than the Germans do. And so like not only they, they so they, they'd already announced that wherever the Germans buy, they're going to try to take advantage of the common package of the NATO. NATO at this point in time, like has sort of an embryonic version of the like consortium system. The Germans will eventually leverage and sort of like really refine in the 1960s. And so 
they essentially say like whatever they buy, we're buying too kind of thing. That's why like that's why this conflict between like Lockheed and Dasso is such a big deal, and why there'll be so many allegations of bribery and everything on top of you know just the sheer competition of it all. Um, <clears throat> so in 1958, late 58, early 59, uh, the Western government decides on the Starfighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, this really irritates the French. Um, especially because it gets leaked like several months before the publicized decision date that the German government had decided like a long time ago they were going to pick the Starfighter. They were just leading the French along for as long as they could to like, you know, try to keep relations as nice as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they buy it. The Dutch and the Belgians buy it too. The Italians very shortly thereafter also join. And so this is where the crux of my dissertation really begins is examining what the Germans do to build the Starfighter Production Management Consortium. Because um, they use this ability to be able to issue sub-production licenses to benefit these countries as well. So they, they go to the Dutch and Belgian and the Italians, and they say, like, look, like, we, we'll give you the right to build aspects of the Starfighter, right? Like, you can build, like, yeah. a fuselage here, and you can build the wings there, and you guys can build some engines here kind of thing. So we all benefit from this. And then, you know, we'll work together closely as a, as a multinational European integrated program. The idea being, actually how the Germans like sell it, but in part is like, this will help us build a block that can like, you know, compete with the United States even. Like, let's use, let's use this American product to our own advantage. And so from the very beginning, like they're trying to like massage this sort of future out of it. We're like, you know, we can come back in a couple of years and do our own thing. Like we can just, this be like the last American thing we buy kind of thing. And so they they build, um, they help establish the Starfighter Management Production Offices, which are through NATO, but are headquartered in the city of Koblenz on the Rhine in Germany, which is a very pretty place. I recommend going someday. Um, but yeah, so from the get-go, the Starfighter program is like, like Germany's in charge of it in Europe. It is the German Starfighter, like NATO adventure experience kind of thing. And by the end of the Starfighter's run in NATO, it'll serve, I think, with 11 NATO air forces. Like, it's a really, really popular plane. It flies with everything from, like, the Spanish fly it, the Turks fly it, the Greeks fly it. Like, pretty much everyone. Despite its um, really tumultuous start, that first... Yeah, uh, despite that, despite that, it's... it's, it's a really common aircraft. I think in part because there's so many of them are built, and in part because um, the first few years are just so tumultuous in flying it that they eventually like they they figure out really really quickly like how do you safely operate this thing? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's part of like what Germany's trying to do though with the Starfighter in NATO is build a whole ecosystem, right? Like this whole like Starfighter ecosystem of management and production and logistics and maintenance and everything all in house in Europe that will eventually be free of American involvement because we've, we've got this now. Um, so, um, of course, as, as we've mentioned, it, the Starfighter service record in those early years is not great in Germany. There's a variety of reasons for it. Everything from the pilots themselves are don't receive enough flight hours really to handle it safely to where they do train is Luke Air Force Base in Arizona, which is great because it's dry weather and blue skies most days out of the year, but northern Germany is neither of those things. Not that, yeah, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. 
they don't really build the infrastructure for it. Like the runways are too short to safely operate the Starfighter. Like Lockheed has to give them a, a, basically a parachute pack for the back of the plane to slow them down when they land. Um, they spend a lot of money developing these capture systems to like safely capture a Starfighter before it runs off the runway. Um, the engine's finicky, and if it flames out, that's all you, EFU you have to eject. Like it's only one engine. Um, the flight computer is very new and uses vacuum tubes and if it doesn't get the proper warm-up time it like at least like 10 minutes of warm-up it doesn't work really well um if it gets wet it doesn't work very well <laughs> and they weren't they didn't build hangers for the starfighters they were storing them under tarps like out in the open in a lot of bases like again hmm. like the military b- did not build the infrastructure needed to safely operate this thing like the starfighter's design is definitely problematic when it comes to safety, but the German military was uniquely bad at this because the the issue to them wasn't so much like like get, safely operating this thing slowly. It was get as many as you possibly can, show it a success, and then like sell it further with a NATO kind of thing. It was mm-hmm. it was not like like the military mission of the starfighter as like a, a military asset is totally secondary to its political and economic value is like how we jumpstart aviation and give them the tools they need to build like cutting edge aircraft. And how do we get other European countries to like view us as a leader within this sector on the continent? So for the first five years, um, until 1965, 66, the Starfire is an atrocious safety record. And the military is aware of this. Like, it's not like they're pretending it doesn't exist, but they develop all these different ad hoc groups basically to like, try to tackle these issues as they come up. And of course, like just more issues come up and dogpile and snowball and everything until eventually the German government, like it's such, it's such a scandal by 1966, like the German government fires the Air Force's leadership, replaces them entirely with a man named Johannes Steinhoff, who um, was a Second World War aviator, but he also was like, he was a, like a starfighter evangelist in a lot of ways. Like he was a starfighter pilot like even as a, even as the commanding general of the Air Force, like he flew the thing constantly to show them you can fly this plane. Mm-hmm. You know he gets in office and he grounds the whole fleet and they just institute. Oh yeah, so like NATO's second largest air force gets grounded for several months. So they can just like implement all these fixes, all the ones that they've been like bringing up for years. And like we'll get to it. We will. We I promise we'll get to that. <laughs> he's like, no, we are we are. We're just, now. Yep, we're, we, it has to happen now. It just has to happen now. And I mean, part of the reason it's a big deal is like the major overt reason they buy the Starfighter is that it can carry a nuclear weapon. Um, it can so every Starfighter squadron in the German Air Force has a secondary mission profile to drop nukes, even the reconnaissance units. Because the Starfighter gets bought for everything. It's a it's an interceptor, it's a fighter bomber, it's a close air support aircraft, it's a reconnaissance plane. Like they it, and again, please look at a picture of this thing. It is not a multi-role aircraft. It is <laughs> It's very much a like shiny, sleek 1950s interceptor. But the Germans are like, we can do anything with it. We'll do it all. <laughs> with but that's part of like this this like getting clout NATO thing is Germany. The German military legally can't have nuclear weapons unless it's a time of war. But the Starfighter can drop nukes, and so at every German air force base, there's a U.S. Air Force detachment with a little bunker that is full of tactical nuclear bombs. And so the idea was, in the event of a war, the Air Force would, like, the German Air Force would go over to the U.S. Air Force side, they would sign a piece of paper for the nukes, take ownership of them, because it was now wartime, and then there you go, there's, there's NATO's second strike option, is the German Air Force, basically. 
So that's another big issue is like the training these pilots do get is oftentimes like for the nuclear role, not for their normal job of like whatever they're supposed to be doing. And so they're just not, it's a whole like just collection of issues. Like I, I feel like I'm not doing it service right now because there are just so many issues that I would spend another hour talking about because the way they, they don't tackle this issue for years, even though they know it's a bad issue that's getting people killed is, you know, definitely a thing that shatters a lot of public confidence in the military but be an issue for them it definitely was but the successful bit is what i focus on which is how they essentially build you know a german both a german and a european aviation sector out of this so the german aviation sector gets a lot of stimulus money effectively from the starfighter right like the government pumps a bunch of money into it um Aviation workers are very high-paying jobs in Germany. It's it's contributing a lot of money to the economy, especially in Bavaria. Like this is this is Strauss's dream right here is like all these high-tech jobs, like, kind of like a, like a proto Silicon Valley, right? Like oh, yeah. all these high-tech aviation and weapons programs are right in Munich, and um, they they learn through trial and error over the course of the program, like. How do you manage a multinational production program? How do you manage the like? How do you manage the management side of it? Like, once you have these planes, like, how do you keep them flying? How do you keep the parts moving? How do you keep the training going? Kind of thing. And so, by 1964-65, Germany is going to the Starfighter Consortium members and talking about what comes next. And they're feeling pretty. I mean, like, other than the German safety record, which again is a big deal, they're feeling pretty good about this because NATO. Like, the difference between, like, the, how the NATO sources look at the Starfighter versus, like, the German sources for me was, like, night and day. NATO unapologetically loves the Starfighter. It uses it as, like, I mean, it, it is the biggest weapons program in NATO's history at that point in time. It becomes the benchmark by which all future international collaborations are made. Like, basically, the Starfighter program is so successful at getting all these NATO countries together to do a common thing that it becomes elemental to how they do it going forward. Like, the how the Germans set up this consortium and how they manage it is basically like how NATO still does a lot of this stuff today. But essentially Germany approaches it kind of gingerly as a, like a first among equal sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the Germans are bankrolling the Starfighter program in NATO. Like there's, there's no question about that. Like they, the breakdown is like, you know, Germany pays about half of it and the other, other three countries pay for the other half collectively kind of thing. Yeah. So the Germans, but they don't, they don't like really abuse that leadership role. Like the, it really is like a first among, first among equals sort of like, they act as like head of the board, not CEO kind of thing, right? Like it's like, there's always, there are lots of meetings. There are lots of like, there's a lot of room for the other three countries to kind of get in with what they think is important or like what they need right now kind of thing. And so by 1964, the Germans have done this for a few years and they, they go to the consortium and they say, hey, like the Starfighter, let's let's look at the sum total of what did work and what has not worked with the Starfighter program, and let's do our own thing. Let's design whatever comes next, right? Yeah. And so they they call this it's uh, in German it's the Neuskampfflugzeug or the new combat aircraft program, it's NKF initially. And there's a lot of back and forth, like whether or not it's gonna be a domestic design or like that, that's separate from whatever the European design comes up with. But eventually, um, they all come together. 
as it, it kind of comes together as, like a, as a European program. And by 1966, they're, they're building this new consortium again. Um, the UK is expressing interest in joining the consortium now because uh, the British defense cuts in the 60s are starting to hurt them. And they, they realize like they can't really go it alone anymore. Like they, they need to, to do these programs with other countries. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, France also shows interest in doing this, which is a whole kind of red herring, like no, like, like entirely bad faith effort on the France's part. Um, they said the, the French joined this consortium and then they constantly try to sell the, the country's French products and undermine them and like try to like peel off like whole companies and countries and stuff. They're like, no, 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 you should quit this program and just like buy French products instead. It's a lot cheaper and easier than doing this because designing a plane is really expensive and there's a whole oh, yeah. lot of inherent to it. And so that's the whole French mantra this whole time, like for like a year is like, oh, no, no, no. Like we already have this stuff. You should do this until eventually the Germans kick them out of the consortium because they're just trolls. but like i mean it's also partly like it shows again um like germany's conception of like its role in europe is the first one equals sort of thing like whereas the french are still like oh no we're the best and well you can be a junior partner in that arrangement and you can buy our stuff and if we really like you we'll maybe give you more things to do and by the 1980s there's this whole you know like that that whole very dichotomous relationship pans out because the Germans are still like leading these new consortiums for these aircraft and the French aviation sector is bankrupt basically in the mid eighties. It has to get like a big government bailout. <clears throat> and that's in part because like a lot of these companies have at least like partial state ownership now still the French ones do, but it, you know, another, it's another issue for another day, but <laughs> I know I'm trying to keep all these, these threads together. It, it, the dissertation winds a couple different routes, but that's what dissertations uh, do. <laughs> they do. That's why, that's why self-contained chapters are really nice. Cause then you can just kind of like stop this right here. We're going to pivot right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So by the mid, by the late sixties, um, it's the Germans are designing and developing in tandem with, 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 with these partners, a new program um, that will become the multi-role combat aircraft program, as it's called, or the MRCA. Um, of the starfighter consortium countries, only Italy makes, like, really sticks with it. Uh, the United States also sees the writing on the wall with this program, and it peels off the Belgians and the Dutch to buy the F-16, because they say, like, hey, hey, look, this is a lot cheaper and a lot less risky than you guys investing a ton of money into this new program, and we'll give you all the same fringe benefits we gave you guys with the Starfighter program. And so the Dutch and the Belgians were like, we have no defense budget whatsoever. So yes, yes, that works. Sorry, Germany. But so by 1969, um, the Germans are effectively like trying really, really hard to articulate this like rah-rah international European program in the face of both like French and American headwinds. And it's not, it's not like it's a, it's the most efficient thing. Like, People within the German government know, especially after the Starfighter. The Starfighter was so expensive. And the Starfighter was so costly. And they're like, you know, you can do something else. It doesn't have to be like this. But they 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 push forward with it. Um, and, you know, the U.S. government offers them every plane under the sun to not pursue this program. Like We, we offer them everything. We give them... Like you can do the F-15, the F-14, even the F-16, all these different planes. Like <clears throat> every American company, just about that's still in military aviation, offers the Germans a plane, and the Germans say, "No, we're going to do our own thing." 
we've been gearing up for this for like 10 years. This is what we're doing kind of thing. And all throughout the MRCA's development, which eventually turns into the Panavia Tornado, which is now exiting service um, pretty much across the board after like 50 years, um, the Germans are the ones really pushing it. Like they are, they're putting the most money into it. Italy and the UK start faltering in the 70s with the program because there are a lot of cost overruns, <coughs> production delays, because it's a really, you know, it's it's a new program from the ground up. It uses a lot of new advanced systems. It basically like, the idea was to like do everything the Starfighter did right and then fix everything it did wrong and put it in the one mm-hmm. plane package, right? And so there was just a whole lot of blow with the program because like everybody had what they viewed as the most important thing put into it. Of course, that costs money, and they're having to debate it. So, like, when you're debating it, that takes time. And anyway, but like the early 70s, um, as stagflation begins to take hold in Europe with the economic slowdown, the Germans have to like bail out the Italians. The Italians say, like, look, we can't afford this anymore. And the Germans say, like, okay, we're, we're going to take up some more of the cost, effectively. The Brits try to do that too. And there's actually this like really petty little exchange in the archive between the British and the the Germans about this. So the British are like, our economy is not doing great either. And the Germans are like, we've examined the we 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 we've examined the data. Your economy is fine. <laughs> like, yeah. But you know, the Brits have sunk so much money into it they can't really abandon the program. So like they stick with it. And eventually they get the tornado comes out of this program. And then from the tornado we get the Europa Typhoon, which is like still in service today. And then now we're getting um the Future Combat Air System is the next generation program that the Germans are overseeing now with the French and the Spanish, I believe, um, for this new, it's supposed to come out in the 2030s, I think. But that's kind of like the long story short of the dissertation is like the Starfighter program, for better or for worse, becomes the foundation upon which Germany builds this series of consortiums within NATO, outside of NATO, that give us, at least in part, a lot of these companies today, like Air, like Airbus, um, mm-hmm. through a whole, whole series of, of mergers and conglomerations, Airbus Space and Defense today comes out of the Starfighter, at least in part. Like the military division does, because like the Starfighter consortium of these different companies the German government cobbles together within Germany, then becomes like 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 Messerschmitt fuses with a couple different companies, and then like Dornier fuses a couple companies, like eventually like. Daimler Aerospace is the one that buys them all, and then Daimler Aerospace gets bought out by EADS, which gets bought out by, you know, Airbus. I, I actually have a whole flowchart in my appendix explaining how all the companies like fuse and merge over the like 50 years. Um, because I didn't, I didn't talk too much about how the companies do this in Germany, but basically, like, you know, the defense ministry picks the winners and the losers from the Starfighter program, and the losers just get absorbed by the winners. So like, mm-hmm. Messerschmitt's a winner. Um, and then, you know, um, oh, what's the, the other big company I'm blanking on its name right this second, but there, there's, there, there are a few winners in, in German aviation that essentially like they then become the Titans of German aviation for the rest of the war period. Like, and you see this across the West, like in the United States too, um, we go from having a ton of companies that do airplanes and stuff to like four <laughs> for today. Really? So it just, as the, is the economy slowed down in the seventies and as defense procurement slowed down, there were a lot of like mergers and everything um, as different companies came together um, for common resources and everything. But yeah, so that is in a very, very tight sort of wrap up right there is, is sort of the crux of the dissertation is that the Starfighter program is problematic. 
from a military perspective, but from a political and economic one, it gives Germany the tools it needs to reassert itself as a, as a leader within Western European military aviation circles. So um, you, you've mentioned a little bit about the historiography and where you uh, differ uh, from uh, the uh, from some who argue, you know, the the starfighter was a complete disaster for Germany yes. and so forth. Um, where would you say you sit overall within the historiography of you know German aviation and the uh, remilitarization of Western Germany? So uh, my sources are what kind of makes this unique. Uh, in a lot of cases, I was, especially with the NATO stuff, I was the first person to ever look at this thing, like all these 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 records. Um, I, I benefited from another scholar. I, I don't know who it was. They didn't tell me. But when I got to the NATO archives, they said, hey, um, we had another scholar who did a declassification request like a year or two ago, and it all just came through. Do you want to look at this stuff? Because like he'd already he'd already defended like they they were like this person already defended their dissertation and again they wouldn't they wouldn't tell me who it was but they're like they're not going to look at it anytime soon but do you want to look at it it's declassified I was like yeah sure I'll I'll look at everything <laughs> so I went from having like like ten boxes of stuff to look at at NATO to like a hundred <laughs> <laughs> a blessing so, and a curse. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It, it added like a week to my time in Belgium, which was nice. Like Belgium is a really fun country. Oh, I've been visiting it at some point, but, but that's kind of like where my intervention is, is unique compared to the rest of the historiography is I have a lot of these NATO sources that were not touched before me. Um, I'm assuming, I mean, I, I don't know somebody, somebody might've looked at them since then, but I'm not sure how many historians of the starfighter are going to NATO terribly often. I mean, granted, I'm sort of an accidental historian of the starfighter that just sort of happened, but, um, <laughs> <clears throat> um, but yeah, it's my, the secondary literature I, I, I found on the Starfighter focuses, especially in the United States, like in English, it, it really is operational military history for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a little less in Germany. In, in Germany, they, they discuss a, a good bit about the cultural and social ramifications of the Starfighter program, namely for like public confidence in the military. Um, the Starfighter like really does help bring down the Christian Democratic government, like the scandals are just so bad that it, it shoots, like it just undermines a lot of confidence in that. And so it helps bring in the Social Democrats in the late 60s with Billy Bront, at least in part. It's not like the main reason, but <clears throat> it's part of like that, you know, the Christian Democrats were in power for, God, like 15, 16 years before they lost, like they lost the chancellorship. And so there's this whole running series of issues of like, the electorate's increasing distrust of that government and that party for a while. Um, but, you know, like, in a lot of the German sources, they focus on the operational military aspect of it, um, or they focus on sort of, like, the cultural, social aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so where I went in with the sources, like, really, I was looking at it from, like, the more, like, the, the NATO perspective, much more than anything else. Like, what is the Starfighter's value for Germany within the within the lens of, of, its, of its place in NATO? Mm -hmm. Um, which was what I think is the most unique intervention because the German military only exists because of NATO. If, if NATO didn't exist, there's no Bundeswehr as we know it today. Um, and so I, I was really curious to see, because I mean, I, I, I like aviation and, you know, I was going to do a topic kind of aviation centric anyway, but I'm, I've always been fascinated by post-war Germany because it's such a unique state because, it, you know, we, 
it, it's it's one of the only like truly successful post fascist narratives you have, right? And and when you, I mean, Italy and Spain, of course, being the other examples, but like with the Germans, it's it's really unique, like how this country does or does not drag itself out of the pit of this like of, of where fascism leaves it and to, to essentially like to ascend to being the most one of the most important countries in europe within 20 years like that's what you don't see with spain and italy is you know spain is marines under francoist role until the 70s and then you know the spanish have never really asserted themselves as like a true european power since then and the italians have gone back and forth like where they fit into europe but they've never had the same political and economic clout as, as like post-war germany has no. So for for me, like that was the fascinating thing is how do you get these people, many of whom were involved in the Nazi regime, many of whom were ardently opposed to the Nazi regime, how do you get them involved in like in the same room? And how do you get them playing nice with other countries in a way that Germany historically never has? Because like I chart kind of what I what I, I I view very loosely as like two forms of German military um like like two like military like worldviews or Weltanschauungs. Like the first is sort of the pre-45 one, right? Um yeah. the German military is an aggressive tool of the state that is a coercive tool to not only keep internal peace, well peace, stability, I guess, but also as a means of enforcing its will on neighboring countries. And in the Second World War, there's a whole genocidal like bent to that that the Imperial military never quite makes it to like there there are definitely genocidal tendencies in the imperial German military but like world war ii is totally different. yeah no no there's very different approaches um or at least very different results i should say <coughs> um and so to take that like that experience like the, the extreme experience of being the perpetrators of the worst some of the worst crimes in human history and have your country demolished, like quite literally demolished and demilitarized and everything. And I was really curious, like how, like how do you get there from from that extreme to the other extreme of like being the fulcrum around which all these different military projects are built and designed and developed and everything? Like, like what is the process of like regaining the trust of Europe, like or your own people for that matter, or like, you know getting over your pre-45 conceptions of how the world should function and realizing like oh we live in a very international moment right now like we're not germans we're europeans and like we gotta like really focus on like how we tie into this bigger network and so that's what drove a lot of this the starfighter approach is it's not even so much a german narrative in a lot of ways I mean, like yes germany is is the main player in it i use german archival sources the far and away the most sam in germany's experience with the starfighter program most heavily but part of it is it's just a, it's just a logical consequence of the germans being the driver of the program the biggest bankroller of the program the people to which the starfighter was initially sold mm -hmm. you know like germany is the one that has the most scandals with it i mean granted <laughs> the lockheed bribery scandals are kind of legion so like in the 70s um lockheed basically is going bankrupt again and appeals to the u.s government for a bailout and there's a famous committee in the Senate at the time headed by Senator Frank Church called the Church Committee, um, who also investigated all a lot of like Richard Nixon shenanigans. And the Church Committee said, okay, let's see your books. And they go through Lockheed's books, and it comes out that Lockheed had been bribing foreign government officials across the, the globe to buy Lockheed stuff, right? Like 
the the prince prince Bernhard of the netherlands is implicated because he was given like a million dollars to like push for the starfighter in the in the netherlands um the king of jordan is implicated because he buys a bunch of airliners um there's a whole like like the prime ministers of both italy and japan are forced to resign and put into prison because they bought lockheed stuff or they were given lockheed money so yeah no the lockheed bribery scandals are crazy um but like that's part of it too is you know it's like germany germany plays a central role in that as well like there are numerous bundestag investigations into these allegations of both francis of strauss as well as lockheed and like unlike the other countries they can't get the documentary evidence to prove it conclusively and their star witness ernst hauser that lockheed rep who was francis of strauss's best friend winds up not being the witness they thought he'd be like he really, like he has all these allegations against strauss Mm-hmm. Like, but like there's no like corroborating evidence for it really and like the two had a major falling out previously so like there's a lot of allegations like oh no he's just out for blood because he's really mad about their falling out um but so this starfighter narrative you know is inherently international like i i i never divorce it from the international element like it's it ties in American interests, ties in French interests, it ties in German, Dutch, Belgian, Italian, it's NATO interests. And so for me, like I, I take the Starfighter and I broaden its role far beyond its its existence as an aircraft to use it as a as a lens of analysis itself for not only Germany's political and military political military and economic ambitions in, in the early Cold War, but also how that factors into other ambitions how it factors into other things that we still deal with today exactly. <laughs> for better or for worse we still have the starfighters legacy that's that's part of what really dragged me into this is you know it constantly is written about as a giant failure like whenever i talk to people about this project if they if they have like any interest in aviation they're like oh yeah the starfighter that thing crashed all the time i'm like yes yes <laughs> but, <laughs> but but also <laughs> You know, I mean, there's the whole, like, I, I, I can go on feel about how, like, really, like, you know, flight safety got a whole lot better after 1966, and they did a really good job flying it relatively safely for the rest of the time they had that kind of thing. But, like, <clears throat> but the important thing for me, though, is, like, it's not, it's not that the airplane itself is the important thing. It's that everything wrapped up in it, right? Everything from the intellectual property rights that comes with it, everything from, like, the moment in time it's offered to the Germans, like, how, like, it's all like this lightning in a bottle or for them it's like it's the right plane at the right price namely like it gives them all these fringe benefits mm-hmm. and it's a moment in time when europe is having to go through like sort of a rearmament like because by the late by the mid to late 50s as the united states and the Eisenhower administration are kind of like telling nato like hey guys we are not spending a ton of money on conventional defense in europe anymore but yeah, it's 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 this whole it becomes this this lens of analysis and this focal point. And I, I call it I, I call it the station a like a fulcrum of development essentially. That like is this pivot point for for Germany and for Europe in you know seizing the advantage well the, the what will be the advantage of this American pullback, right? Like this this yeah. telling of the Europeans like you have to take more responsibility for your common defense. Like we can't do this alone. And so for the Germans, like, because they, they are in the middle of their economic miracle, like, they have the money. They have the political will, kind of. Um, of course, there's a lot of infighting on that front. But this is the moment for them, like, it's all, like, the Starfighter, like, really allows them to seize this moment 
and to make something permanent out of it. Like, you know, these the fact that there still is a European aviation sector, like a military one that's that's international, that you know, that the Germans, every time they want to develop a new aircraft, never do it alone, hardly. They always go, even if they can afford it, like they go to other countries. They they it's always an international project. And that comes out of the Starfire. Like it it's still you know, this plane that gets made fun of constantly for mm-hmm. how much of a widowmaker it is. Like, you know, if you if you look at its its value beyond like flight safety, which granted, you know, is an important factor. <laughs> it really is. And a lot of authors have written about that. But if you look beyond that, if you look beyond that very narrow frame of analysis, if you look beyond like its its strict military utility, then it becomes a really unique story for how Germany construes its role in Europe and the wider world in the early Cold War. As it's fumbling and trying to figure out, like, who are we? What are we in this new system? And how can we leverage it to our own advantage? Which, uh, considering your uh, current position with uh, the Navy, you know, that would be something that uh, a historian would uh, look at when, because you're not looking at actually, you know, let's say, uh, you were working for the German government, you wouldn't be looking to actually bringing back the 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 plane into service, but you'd be looking at see, you know, uh, what went right, what went wrong, and right. you know how to how to uh, improve on that. So that's very important to see beyond just the military aspect of that plane. Which is even within the military aspect, like that's what that's what they do when they come together to design the the successor of the program. They're like, what they they do a full debrief on it, like. What was everybody's success story with the Starfighter? What was the failures? And like, let's just fix all that. And they do. By and large, they do. The Tornado is a really capable, fairly safe aircraft. It's, you know, basically everywhere the Starfighter doesn't work super well, they build a redundancy in the Tornado to make it work better. (coughs) But, um, I mean, interestingly enough, the Italians actually flew their Starfighters until, God, like 2004. They flew them for a very long time. Yeah, they put a like a super advanced aviation avionics package into it in like the seventies, the eighties. That that the F one hundred four S is what it winds up being called. But like, yeah, the Italians fly that thing forever because they they give it the ability to like launch long range missiles, and so it's just it's still like the they they use it mostly for like bomber interception and stuff. But they fly their they fly their starfighters for like forty plus years. It's it's mm. a great time. I mean, even the Germans they fly theirs until the late eighties, like. Mm-hmm. So you know, like there's there's a there there's a lot of there, there are decades of lessons learned from this program beyond even what I'm talking about right now. That you know, if you if you open the frame of analysis beyond the, that five year, like oh my god, they're all falling out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's a lot of utility here for if, if somebody is a budding aviation historian or someone wants to do air power or whatever. Like the Starfighter is the first like. I mean, NATO coins it the first NATO fighter, right? Like, mm-hmm. it is the first fighter, like, designed and built in huge numbers for a huge number of NATO states, like, from the from the get-go. Like, the Starfighter is tied to NATO, and it is, collo- like, colloquially known as, like, as the NATO fighter. And then fo- following that, the F-16 is the new NATO fighter, and now today the F-35 is the NATO fighter. But the NATO fighter as a coined term comes from the Starfighter. So, like, there's there's a lot of... There's a lot to this crazy-looking airplane, I, I promise. And I did not come into this as a Starfighter apologist. I, <laughs> you know, I so I grew up I, I grew up in Ohio, and my grandparents had worked at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is where the National Museum of the U.S. Air Force is. 
And I went to that museum with my grandfather constantly as a child. And on a telephone pole, right at the gate entrance to the museum, is a starfighter. Like, mounted, like, it's rocketing up into the sky, right? And I looked at that thing every time I went into the, into the museum as a kid, thinking, like, why? Why this airplane? It, I, I, I didn't understand it. I didn't think it looked good. I was like, this just looks like the wings don't make sense. Like, like why this plane? And so I, I never, ever thought in my life I would spend multiple years looking at this plane. But mm-hmm. here we are. <laughs> so there's, there, there's a lot to unpack with it. Um, and there's plenty more than I was able to get around to with the dissertation because it, it, it needs to get written. Because <laughs> dissertations, for anybody looking to pursue one, or anybody looking to write one or is going to start writing one at some point, they need hard borders. Mm-hmm. You will never get it done if you don't just say, you know what? Can't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> just can't do it. That's what future research is for, future projects. Yeah, you yeah, can go that, down those rabbit holes. That is what the book is for. When you go to publish it as a, as a monograph, you can, mm-hmm. you can do stuff like that. That is what other books are for or articles. But for the dissertation, my advisor is very fond of saying that the only good dissertation is a done dissertation. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because otherwise, you know, you can do it for nine or 10 years. You really can. And it's just not something you should do. Mm -mm. Go, go have a life. Go Mm -hmm. have fun. (laughs) Don't write this thing forever. (laughs) Uh, I did have a question about the the starfighter. Did it, um, did it have any military record? Uh, Did it serve anywhere? Oh, yeah, yeah, the Starfighter, um, so the U.S. Air Force flies it uh, until, like, 1972. I think it exits service with the Air National Guard by then. Uh, we fly it in Vietnam during the first couple of years of our involvement there. It does not have a stellar record, um, in part because it's they, they have it doing bomber escort and close air support, which, again, are not, like, mission roles this plane is designed to do. Um, it's an like, interceptor, right? So, I mean... It's, it really, it's designed as, like, it's a beautiful, sleek interceptor. Like, this thing looks like it's going a 1,000 miles an hour sitting still. Like... So there's, there's no North Vietnamese aircraft to really worry about, so... <laughs> so, one does get shot down by a MiG. I think MiG-21. Like, they get, like, yeah. a, a radar lock on it. It does get shot down. But mm. most of the rest of them is just, like, crash and accidents. Like, mm. you know, it's, it's still, it's a single-engine aircraft. Like, if that engine flames out on takeoff or landing the whole thing's a wash. Like, you just lose that airplane. And so that's... Actually, like, the lesson of the Starfighter really comes... That that whole lesson comes into play with the Tornado program because the Germans are like, okay, we need two engines. This thing needs two engines for safety redundancy. It also needs ground mapping radar because we had too many people who flew into trees or mountains because they couldn't see in the fog. And because the, and because the flight computer wasn't reading altitude properly. So, like, that, that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing they go through is, like, all this stuff that the Starfighter just was not designed to do, that they forced it to do, you know. Like, <laughs> and, and the Air Force does that, too. Like, the, the U.S. Air Force, and, like, I mean, part of the reason they get the F-4 Phantom is Robert McNamara basically trying to, like, um, what he would call rationalize the defense budget. So the, the Navy develops the F-4 Phantom, mm-hmm. and it's a pretty good airplane, and McNamara says the Air Force gets it, too. We're going to... Stop duplication. This is how we're going to save some money so we can free that up for ballistic missiles or, re- or rebuilding the army in this case. And so the Air Force experience with the Phantom is like, oh, man, two engines. This is really safe and great. So it's pretty common from then on out, like for a lot of aircraft going forward and a lot of different Air Forces to have two engines just because lose one and you're done. You're done. Yeah, there's nowhere else to go with that. 
No, I mean, granted, there's still plenty of single engine fighters. The F-16 and the F-35 are two examples of that. But engine technology has gotten a little more advanced since then. Like, like the J-79 that the Starfighter used was, it was the first of its kind. Like, it was, you know, it had a ton of issues that eventually got ironed out. Like, the, the, the F-4 Phantom used the same engine. It just used two of them. So, but yeah, that's, um, there's a whole, so the Starfighter gets used successfully um, in NATO mostly. Uh, the Japanese fly the Starfighter for a long time. The South Koreans, no, no, sorry, not the South Koreans, uh, the, um, the Taiwanese Air Force, Republic, Republic of China, they fly the Starfighter for a while. Um, actually, they get, maybe they get like one of the only air to air kills with that. Like they shoot down like a, a PRC MiG at some point. Um, the Greeks fly it. The Norwegians and the Danes actually have a really good track record with the Starfighter. They fly theirs for a long time, um, which is shocking because both Denmark and Norway are cold, foggy places. Like, and it's mm-hmm. full of mountains. So it's like, how do you guys do that? But it's a perfect place for air. Yeah, right. I know. I know. Um, but yeah, so it it doesn't really have much of like a combat record because NATO fortunately never had to go to a general war with the Soviet Union. But I mean, the Germans fly 900 plus Starfighters. Um, I think. Oh man, I can't remember what like, the production totals are of the Starfighter. Like it's something like four or five thousand of them getting made. I, I mean, don't quote me on that because I don't. Know that. That, that, <laughs> is, late, that, is, that is a wild <laughs> guess. Do not. Nobody come at me for that. But, <laughs> but many thousands of starfighters do get made, and um, for a lot of NATO air forces in the 70s, um, they get them secondhand. As mm-hmm. it's like like Turkey and Greece, for instance, get a lot of secondhand German starfighters um, because. You know, they they're they don't have a ton of money for aviation and the Germans are phasing them out for first the F four Phantom and the Tornado. So they they have a, a, a long service record. And like I said, the, the Italians fly theirs until after the turn of the century. They fly theirs for a very long time. So that I would point to them as being the most successful flyers in the Starfighter because they just have they just have for the longest period of time. But I mean like NASA flew them for a long time. Uh, NASA actually a NASA Starfighter is in the Air and Space Museum in DC. Um, they would use them as, as chase planes and test planes because they were really fast. So, yeah, there's a lot of weird uses, users for them. Um, I think there's a company in Florida, actually. It's like Starfighters Incorporated or something that, that has like four or five of them. They do air shows. So you can still see them fly. Really? Go around. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to ask, do you, uh, do you know where in the museum it was? Because I'm trying to remember the last time I was there. I don't remember... So at Air and Space, um, it hung in, it was in the Space Gallery, because it was a NASA plane, but mm-hmm. it hung like right over the Space Gallery, and I can't tell you where it is now, because they are reopening, Air, they, they renovated the whole building, they're reopening it in five days, actually. This week, they're reopening the Air and Space Museum in the mall. Really? Oh, so I don't, when I was a Guggenheim fellow at Air and Space, um, that was kind of like, people like, oh my god, you do the Starfighter, we have a Starfighter, but it's in storage, and I'm like, Yes. <laughs> I don't know if it's still in storage currently, if it's going to make it back to the museum or not. Um, I, I actually, I, I can ask, I can ask some of the curators. I still have, I still know over there. Um, maybe they have an idea. But last I knew it was boxed in storage somewhere in Maryland. <laughs> so, but it was hanging so like right cool. above the main floor in the space gallery. Hmm. I don't remember. It's it's been a few years since the last time I was there. Because uh, last last time I tried to go, that it was closed. But um, I'm try I'm drawing a blank on it. I have to look I have to look it up online and see it. Yeah, so I'm sure some of our listeners have pictures of it and never realized. <laughs> I 
that's uh, fine. It happens. Like I said, with, with the telephone pole as a kid, uh, I, I never really understood the value of this aircraft or why it was there. It was just that oddball just, thing. It was just that weird airplane from the 60s that was right there. It was like, yeah, can we do an F-16? But <laughs> I digress. So um, as a Jiro question, it, yeah. would you say that is the um, uh, is that the most oddball aircraft you've seen? Or is there one that you think is even oh, more? No, no. There, are, there are so many weird airplanes that have been made in, the, made in this world. Um, oh, I don't even know what the weirdest one I've seen is. Um, there have been so, so many. There, there were a lot of test aircraft in the 50s and 60s for things like VTOL flight, like vertical, vertical takeoff and landing, that just look wild. Actually, in fact, the Germans, this is in the dissertation too, the Germans tried to turn the Starfighter to a VTOL aircraft. They developed this thing called the VJ-101, which was based on the Starfighter, that had these two wing nacelles that would like fold up and down, the engines go up and down for it. Um, of course, it didn't really work super well. Um, the one actually, the one killed itself. It was doing like low level, like low level hovering, and it sucked in its own engine gases into the intake, and it just it cut out immediately and <laughs> it killed it. The pilot got out fine. It was a low level enough; he was fine. But like the plane was a write off. Um, so I'm gonna shill this because I'm an unapologetic supporter of the Air Force Museum in Dayton. Um, the Air Force Museum <laughs> in Dayton has opened up a fourth hangar in the last couple of years. There are four hangars, so it's like a two-day trip for me now, which is great. Mm -hmm. But they used to have, on Wright Pad itself, there wasn't room for this, they had all the presidential aircraft, so all the old Air Force Ones, and then all the R&D planes. And they were really hard to get to. You'd like make an appointment and get on a bus and go look at them. But now they're all in the fourth hangar. And so if you want to see some like truly off-the-wall like experimental airplanes, they're all right there. Yeah, they're great. Like go on their web like when you're done, like, go go on their website and look at the experimental gallery. There's just so many crazy looking things in there. But <laughs> um as far as aircraft that have made it into like mass military service. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think of anything like weirder than the Starfighter. Um not off the top of my head. There's some, like there's some weird stuff out of the 50s, like when they're trying to figure out like straight versus swept wings and like radar sets and stuff, like there are some that just look like plain ugly, like the F-89 Scorpion is like this first Air Force, like all-weather aircraft, and it has like this giant nose, it has this radar in it, but it's like it's like a 10-foot nose in front of a canopy, it's just like, this looks awkward, bud. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a whole lot of weird-looking planes, but the Starfighter definitely is the most extreme-looking one that I would say that like makes it into wide service. Like, it's so small compared to a lot of other airplanes that, are, that it's contemporaneous with, even from like the Air Force's Century series that it's a part of, it's small compared to the other ones. Like, it's a much sleeker, like, it's like a, it's like looking at, like, a, like a, like a hot rod compared to, like, a bunch of, like, muscle cars. Like, it's just, yeah. like, it's stripped down for speed. It is just pure speed. Um, yeah, no, it has these really tiny, like, like, pentagonal, like, wings, and it's, yeah, no, there's, or hexagonal, I guess, like, hexagonal wings. It, there's nothing that looks like Quite like it anyway but um yeah i think, I think they're like yeah it goes back straight yep pentagonal there we go <laughs> um so yeah it's it's a crazy looking one it's for for sure for something like with that big of a production run there's not much else that looks like more crazy than the starfighter it's just like there's no there is no design tolerance built into it like everything is like at tolerance like if something goes wrong, there's no time to see whatsoever of this thing. <laughs> yeah. 
build it cheap and build it uh, easy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they built, and that's part of it. Is like it was so advanced that they had to build a ton of them to even get like return of investment on it because mm -hmm. so much money went into just designing this thing. Mm. But yeah, no, it's 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 weird. I have I I, I build model airplanes sometimes as like a, an escape from writing because it's like. It's very much like, you know, when you write, there's no physical product you make usually. Like, you're on a computer, you hit save, and you close it. But when you build models, like, there's a whole lot of freedom to, like, build something, right? Mm -hmm. I built a couple of Starfighters, and, like, they're just, like, they're just crazy. Like, <laughs> like you hold one, and you, like, flip it up, and you look at different angles, and you're like, it's just a weird plane. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, I mean, I bet you could just stand it on its end the way it's designed. It probably doesn't have too much leeway on it no not really no if you can um it, it you can you can almost balance it on its tail uh the only issue is like the the tail plane comes out of it from like the back of the engine so like if you know like you can't do it like perfectly but you really almost could like if that if that was flush with the end of the engine um the engine can like you really could like balance this thing and there would be very <laughs> to push it over um yeah no it's it's a crazy plane <laughs> Well, to uh, to wrap up the interview, the the only uh, question I have left is um, now that you've you know successfully defended and published the dissertation, um, is there anything um, that you're interested in researching now? Is there anything that spiked your interest that you want to go further into? Yeah, so I've been really interested. Um, like the Starfighter is is a really is kind of like my entry level point to like examining this broader European attempt to keep up with the United States, especially to build mm -hmm. aircraft. Um, Cause it's still, especially in Germany, it's still a major, major issue. Um, the, the, the Luftwaffe, I mean, the Bundeswehr in general, the Luftwaffe in particular has like suffered from massive disinvestment since the Cold War ended. And like to the point where like in the last 10 years, there've been, I don't know how many articles written about like how the German Air Force is combat, combat ineffective. They have no spare parts. They have no people to work on these planes. They just, you know, like there are more aircraft sitting in storage waiting pairs and there are flying actively sometimes, depending on like, you know, the year. But um, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine really hit this home for me. because I, I was thinking about this, like how, what, how is this dichotomy function between like Germany as propeller of European aviation and Germany, that is so terrified of giving its own military money that it can't even operate the things it funds. Mm -hmm. But um, the invasion of Ukraine, you know, like as part of that, Europe has all, like, especially the Germans, have all pledged like a bunch more money to defense. But the Germans, at the point, like they've pledged now to meet their NATO required 2% of GDP, and they're going to buy the F 35. And for the longest time, like, there was this big debate about, like, What's Germany going to buy? Because like they want to do the six-generation combat aircraft, but they're trying to keep the Eurofighter and the and the Typhoon limping along for as, for as long as they can. Like those aircraft are increasingly like not as effective as they used to be, especially the Tornado, because that thing is like 50 years old at this point. Mm -hmm. And so, my, I really want to explore um, this dichotomy in Germany. This this like later like this post Cold War, especially dichotomy between. A state that up until 1991 had the second largest air force in NATO, that was the linchpin of NATO's common defense, that went from that to being effectively like incapable of conducting its own national defense within 15, 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And 
but and then it, like examining again like this this ramp up because all throughout that time as as the Bundeswehr is like starved of operational funding its research money seems to be pretty stable like it, it seems like they're still rolling out new stuff they're still collaborating with like other countries and so i'm really <laughs> i'm really intrigued again to see like the the other end of my equation right because the first end of the equation was like how do you get a german a western aviation sector that has 10 years in which like there's no money there's no jobs there's nothing and you get them back up to world-class status to then do the other half of the equation where like you go from like world-class status across the board to like basically like being an r&d hub mm-hmm. and like like it just i mean it might need a little more time to get some more perspective but i'm really really curious to see like how or if this is a paradigm shift in german politics if like because you know Olaf Scholz is a social democrat. Oh, yeah. I have a social dem- like I watched his speech before the Bundestag when he announced like we're we are upping defense spending, we are buying new weapon systems, we are sending we are sending stuff to Ukraine, which is a big deal because the Germans have been so paranoid about their ability to use their military abroad that it's like it's earned them a lot of scorn. Like the German military, mm-hmm. like Germany's ter- fear of using the military um, drives a lot of the instability in the Balkans. In, 19, in the early 90s, um, like the EU attempt to get a, get a, a handle on it is ham, hamstrung intrinsically by Germany's unwillingness to like devote military resources to it. Like it takes a NATO mission, a US-led NATO mission to get that like under control. Oh yeah. And the same thing in Syria. And actually that's, or, or in Libya, I should say, Syria and Libya. And that's actually one of the origin points of my whole research project is like, I was working as, a, as an analyst in DC at a company at the time and like reading articles about how the German Air Force is both combat and effective, but what they can use to support military operations, which in a lot of cases is reconnaissance units. Like they can use these, these recon aircraft to identify targets for usually French aircraft to then go and strike. That was a big deal in German politics because there was a lot of concern in German society. Like, you know, we're just killing by proxy. Like the, the Bundeswehr is constitutionally limited from from operating outside of our country, outside of like basically UN peacekeeping missions, effectively. Um, but you're using these recon aircraft to indirectly kill people. Like, like what's that say about us? Are are we are we pacifistic? Are we? Is this skirting constitutional conventions? Like, and so that's what I was I was really fascinated by is, on the one hand, you know, like you you have Germany as like you know fairly revered as a technology hub in Europe. But on the other, like German society is has again like re-entered this period in which like the military is is actively scorned and, and derided frequently. And I'm just from like a societal perspective, I'm really curious to see if this marks a sea change. If if like the like Russian aggression in Ukraine changes how like the calculus in German society functions to be like, you know, the military once again goes from being like totally unnecessary in the minds of many people to a necessary evil kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's how like a lot of Germans and a lot of people in general construe of militaries, right? Is like, it's a necessary evil. Like nobody wants to kill other human beings or destroy their stuff or whatever. But like common defense is usually one of those things like we can all agree, like, and, and you know, that's, yeah. I mean, it's like me generalizing again, like that most people tend to come together and agree like, okay, common defense is probably a good idea. Mm-hmm. Whether it's like a deterrent value or what have you, right? Like, probably want to have a military of some variety, just just because it's you know the world we live in, sort of thing. But so 
I'm really interested to see like see that. And so my 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 I, thankfully I don't have to pursue the next research project right this second. I you know like I've, I've got I have a nine to five that takes up a lot of my my time and energy. But, oh yeah. But you know like what comes next is I'm really curious to see the shift because you go from like a, a Cold War mentality of the military's necessary evil to sort of like this 90s, 2000s mentality of European integration will preclude military involvement because people want to join the monetary union. And then that, you know, the monetary union has kept peace on the European continent for a long time. So maybe we don't really need to invest money in military stuff anymore to, oh no, like there's a whole series of things that are like imperiling this international vision of like a, a peaceful Europe that is politically and economically integrated we might need a military again. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 where I, that's where I'm really interested in what comes next. I'm I'm like I'm a contemporary historian. Like I am unapologetically the opinion that history is like I think history is best used in in, our, in analyzing contemporary events, which is anathema to a lot of historians because they think there's not enough time or perspective or there's too much subjectivity to do that. But I feel like historians all too often have abdicated that role and like being commentators on what's going on currently and saying like hey there's an analog here previously or like hey here's a causal chain like it's not perfect it's not gonna tell you the whole story but like you can at least be like oh yeah okay so a to b there's stuff that happens and we can like we can see why things are shaping up the way they are kind of thing and so that's kind of like i i very much am like a post 45 historian that way like i just i think History is most compelling for me when I can apply it to societal issues that are currently at, sta- at play. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like where I, I want to go next with that is like, is this a sea change in Germany or is this, is this, is this a blip? And if it's a blip, why? And if, if it's a sea change, why kind of thing? Uh, I, I, I do agree that Germany is going through an identity crisis right now with all that. And, um, and that's, it, that's- it has- Given them a little bit black eye uh, recently. Yeah, no, it, it, it definitely has. The Ukrainians have been very vocal in calling out what they view as German shortcomings and supporting them relative to a lot of other European partner states. <clears throat> and the Germans are always playing catch up with that, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, it's been doing. They've been doing that since February, basically, at this point. But like, you know, the Germans will announce like we support Ukraine. The Ukrainians say, "Great, send us this stuff." The Germans say, "Well, no, hold on." <laughs> we need to like really think about this and then they'll get forced into it because you know other european partners will listen to stuff anyway and the ukrainians will will disinvite the foreign minister from an event in kiev or whatever and so like it's it's been really fascinating to watch because mm-hmm. you know the social democrats it, it's a coalition of social democrats and, and the green party for the most part both of which are fairly anti-military parties so to watch them like have to do a complete about face and talk about like arming Ukraine and rearming the Bundeswehr and and like <laughs> putting a bunch of money toward the military and it's 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 fascinating. Yeah, so um, interesting to see where it's uh, out for them. So yeah. I look forward to seeing what your research will be able to say about all that. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm I'm. Um, thankfully, I've got a little bit of wiggle room. I got some time where I can like really look at this and get a little perspective. But it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm really curious. <clears throat> well, uh, I just want to uh, thank you for coming on the show and talking to us about your dissertation. Um, and uh, 
allowing for a lot of my listeners their first introduction into uh, really post-World War II history on the podcast. We haven't really talked about anything um, uh, post-1950 uh, when it's come to this podcast. Uh, it's a uh, definitely a breath of fresh air for them <laughs> as they've been stuck in the, uh, the uh, Holy Roman Empire with me for the last two years almost That's, now. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, it, it lasts for quite a while. I've already told them I'm going to be having a huge celebration for myself when Napoleon arrives on the scene because that's just the final end of that abomination. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, thank you again for coming on the show. It was great having you. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it.